hear the word of God from Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia, starting in chapter 3, verse 23. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church family. Hope you're well today. I feel like this mic might be a little hot, so we'll try to, there you go. So good to be with you all this morning and be able to worship together. Guys, I love Sunday worship with all of you. To me, it feels like it reminds me of my family when we had family meals together. When I was a senior in high school, I started doing a lot of activities. My sister was in a lot of activities. We were always busy. But we made sure we had one meal for sure, dinner together, no matter what, even though it was really late. My sister and I already had dinner, but my parents would come home after work at 8.30. And that's what my parents worked till. So about 8.45, my parents would eat dinner. And even my sister and I, who already had dinner, we always sit together. We'd always connect on what had happened that day. And for us guys, Sunday mornings feels like that for me. I know we all have busy weeks. We lead crazy lives. Our schedules are packed. We might not see each other all the time. But Sunday mornings feels like our family dinners, doesn't it? Especially when we do communion Sunday. It's time to connect with those whom you've called to live life with, even though you don't see them all the time. Connect with your brothers and sisters who encourage one another to embark on the mission and the plan that is set for your family together to see what role you're playing and to be encouraged by other people's role that they're playing. Sunday mornings, guys, our worship time is like family meal time, and I covet this time, I love this time, I'm so glad that we get to do it together with you. I love being a part of this family. I love being part of family with you together. So thank you for being a part of our meal time. We're continuing in our series in the epistle Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia. Last week, Ben did an awesome job talking about how we can know that we are children of faith, how we can know that we are children of God, how we can know what it means to be a Christian. And he hammered in the point that we can't add anything to the gospel. Our reading today, we see what it means to be children of God and the role the law played as caretakers for us. 
I want us to look at the beautiful tension between the law and grace. But to be completely real with you, I also just want to focus on one verse that's just really this week spoke powerfully to me. Galatians 4, 6 states, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. To be honest with you guys, I've kind of been struggling a little bit um, uh, with my father's health. Um, My dad isn't doing the best. He lost a lot of weight recently. He, my dad was a guy who's like, he's a small guy. He's like five foot three and a half at best, giving him the half because he wants it. And, but he weighs like his whole life, he weighed about 140, 145 pounds. Um, lately, he weighs 109 pounds. And he just can't seem to gain weight, can't seem to, he just keeps on losing weight. And so that's been hard on my heart, kind of struggling with and dealing with the idea of my dad's not doing well, his health. Facing the facts of reality of maybe losing him soon. And it's just been kind of sitting heavy on me. And this is uh, some sadness I've been dealing with. I love my father. He's not a perfect man by any means. He was not a perfect father by any means. But I know he loved me deeply as well as he was able to. That does something for a kid, right? Knowing that your father, while not perfect, loves you deeply does something for a kid. Knowing that you're loved and cared for by your father, it gave me confidence to explore the world around me because I knew I was safe at home and my dad could rescue me. Once again, mind you, I told you again, my dad's five foot three and a half, weighed 145 pounds, but to me, he was the strongest person in the world. It was like God, Hulk Hogan, and then my dad. That was the power levels I had growing up as a kid. So today's message is gonna be a little more to me because I just really, I really was just, focusing on crying out Abba Father this week, knowing that I will lose my dad one day, knowing but how perfect, what a perfect father I have in heaven. So before I go into all of that, I do want to give you guys a little bit of back, uh, run kind of quickly through what Paul is saying in this scripture. And I want to, in our section today of scripture, it really revolves, this part of Galatians kind of really revolves around a central concern, a central question. And it's a question that kind of, kind of goes through a lot of the New Testament. It's a question that a lot of us wrestle with today. It might not be worded in this way, but we struggle with this. It's this idea, is, is the law opposed to the promise? Is the law opposed to grace? How is it possible to have both law and grace in my life? Aren't they intrinsically opposed? What's it mean to be people of the law and people of grace? Is it one or is it the other? Does that make sense? You hear that question that hopefully you've been hearing all throughout the book of Galatians. So I'm going to try to deal with this tension here really quickly. And I want to give credit for this section. Tim, Tim Keller, in one of his books that I read, really gave a lot and talked a lot about this section. So I'm gleaning a lot of this from what he shared in that book. And Tim Keller starts off by saying, let's see how the beautiful tension exists in the Old Testament. See, most people think that this idea of grace and law only exists when Jesus came around. But it's not the case. This has always been the case. So, thousands of years ago, Moses said to God, you guys remember who Moses is, right? You guys did the water thing, you know? Yeah, really powerful, really cool dude, right? Received the law, you know, he had a staff. Moses was awesome. But thousands of years ago, Moses said to God, he said this incredible words. He said to God, he said, God, show me your glory. And God said, okay. 
I'm going to pass my goodness in front of you, and I'm going to proclaim my name. So he put Moses in the cleft of the rock, and it says in Exodus 34, God passed in front of Moses, proclaimed his name. Moses says, show me your glory. God says, I'll show you my goodness. Then he declares his name. Did you see these things are the same? His glory, his presence, his goodness, his name. It's all the same. They're changed here in this passage. He says, show me your glory. That's an interesting, typical thing for us to say. If we're interested, if we're we're meeting God, and if we're trying to get to know who God is, that's one of the first things we would ask. Maybe not show me your glory. That might not be in our vernacular. But we'd be like, show me who you really are. Show me what you got. Are you really all-powerful? Are you really God? Right? He says, show me your glory. Show me what is ultimate. What makes you you? What makes you God? And God says, I'll tell you what I am. I'll tell you who I am. I'll tell you what I have. I'll tell you, and I'll show you my goodness, and I'll tell you that I am the ultimate. So he puts him in the cleft of the rock. God passes in front of Moses. And this is what it says in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children, their children, for the sins of the parents through the third and fourth generation. That was his glory. I don't want you to overlook this. I want you to get this. God comes and says, I'm going to show you my goodness. I'm going to show you my glory. I'm going to show you who you am. Then he says something that seems kind of at face value fundamentally contradictory, doesn't he? Did anybody else notice that? Did anybody else seem to notice a seemingly contradiction that he states there? He says, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving, maintaining love to the thousands, forgiving wickedness. But then he says, but by no means will I clear the guilty. He's like he's saying, I'm a forgiving God. I love you. I have compassion over you. My heart breaks for you. I'll never, but I'll never ever clear the guilty. I'll forgive, but I won't ever forgive. What? It seems to not make sense. And what does it mean when it says clear the guilty? It means every sin has to be punished. He won't clear it. He won't just wipe it away. It has to be paid. Every sin. Justice must exist. And why is this important? It's important because we struggle with this because our human nature resonates in some ways with both elements of this statement, doesn't it? Our human nature, whether it's due to culture, temperament, personalities, we kind of have a tendency to go one way or the other with this statement here. We see on one hand a God that says, I am forgiving, I am compassionate, I am gracious. And on the other side of it, we say, but I'm not going to let sin just be wiped away. I'm not going to let justice not happen. And some of us are sitting here like, yay, compassion, love, grace, forgiveness. Woo. Others are like, justice, justice, justice. Because we believe in right and wrong. And we believe in the oppressed should be freed. And we believe in justice. And we're seeing here, and we're seeing this seeming contradiction that a God who says, I am forgiving, but I won't, I won't let the debt just be paid away or wiped away. Something needs to happen. God says, you will not really see my glory. You will not really see the absolute greatness of who God is until you see these two things as absolutely and utterly together. There's a scholar, British preacher, Scottish preacher, I mean, in the 19th century, wrote, love, law and love must be reconciled. The one cannot give way to the other. Both must stand, else the pillars of the universe will be shaken. Do you see it? 
when God made all his goodness pass before Moses, he showed that his goodness meant justice alongside grace. It meant forgiveness and judgment. God made all his goodness pass before Moses, and until you see that, you haven't seen who God really is. Until you see that God is both merciful and just. Until you see that God is both forgiving and punishing. When you see that justice and wrath goes to, wrath and mercy and love goes together in one, and there are pillars that make up who God is, then you've missed it. Paul says that in the gospel, only in the gospel do these things come together. Only in the gospel do those things come together intellectually, theologically. Only in the gospel do they come together in history, and only in the gospel can they come together in your own heart and life. They come together because of the work and atonement of Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to read you some quotes. I'm going to read you some verses. I want you to get this. Other religions have a founder. Christianity and only Christianity not only gives you a founder, it gives you a mediator, a substitute. Galatians 3.13 says this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who sinned, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 1 Peter 3.18 says, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Mark 10.45, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve, and he gave his life as a ransom for many. Let me read you this quote by Tim Keller, how he explains this well. By Christ's substitution, and especially at the moment of his death upon the cross, and only at that moment, God's love and law are both satisfied. On the cross, and only on the cross, the love and standards of God perfectly and brilliantly coincide and shine forth together. Jesus was smitten to satisfy the justice of God, since that stroke paid for sins. And yet at the same time, he was smitten to satisfy the love of God, since that stroke secured our salvation. This is quoted in Romans 3.26, that God might be both just and justifier of those who believe. Isn't that great? That God might be both just and justifier. Do you see, Paul says that that's the genius. Without the substitutionary atonement, it's one or the other. No other stroke could establish one without this establishing the other. Do you get this? Do you hear the glory? Both love and law have one. They boasted tall and they never backed down. No compromise, fullness of law and justice on display, fullness of grace and mercy bestowed. How great is our God. On the cross, Jesus didn't die just to give us forgiveness. On the cross, Jesus was our substitute. That means we are as free from the condemnation of the law as if we had died and paid the price. We are that free. Guys, I want you to hear this. That if you're still a Christian here today saying, well, I'm trying my best, but recently I've kind of been messing up. I don't know whether God will accept me. And you don't get it. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what Ben, that's what Pastor Danny, that's what Pastor Eric is trying to hammer in through the book of Galatians. It is the gospel is faith in Christ alone. It's not adding anything else. It's not adding Jewish customs, Jewish laws. It's basically the same truth that in the cross, in the work of Jesus, in his substitutionary atonement, in his death and resurrection, in the fullness of the gospel, is this reality that says there's nothing you did to earn it. But God in his mercy fulfilled justice and mercy and grace and has bestowed that to us. And we live in that reality. Praise Jesus. 
I know that you're hearing this and I hope it makes sense, but the problem is most of us as humans are used to operating under one extreme or over the other. But the gospel always produces both truth and love. It produces both holiness and graciousness. It produces both conviction and a sweetness toward people. Do you get that? We often have this kind of situation. We often like to go towards extremes. We see it politically. We see it on the media. We see it everywhere. We like to lean towards extreme. But God is literally saying we hold, as because it happened in him, in God, these two things are equally in tension, law and mercy. Do you see it? So we do the same. How is it possible that we can have strong moral conviction, strong moral conviction, but yet not want to go to war with everybody who doesn't believe with us? How is it that we can be saved, uh, um, that can only happen when we believe that we're saved not by obeying the law? Now, if you're a relativist who says, well, the law doesn't matter, I'm saved by Jesus' obedience to the law, the law is absolutely critical. See, guys, what happens here is this, I no longer have to obey in order to be saved. I obey in order to please the one who saved me. That changes utterly your attitude towards yourself, toward the law, toward God, toward people who are not listening to it. Guys, when we preach the gospel, people are going to hear it one way or the other, right? If I preach the gospel, people are often going to sit here and they're often going to come at me and say, Lawrence, you're talking too much about people's feelings and what they need. You're not talking about enough about truth and the conviction and morality. On the other hand, people might be sitting here and say, Lawrence, you preach too much about... Um, uh, too much about law and following rules and living for Christ and being on mission and all this kind of stuff. You don't preach enough about grace and forgiveness. You're often going to hear what your paradigm is, right? Where you're coming from. People will not therefore listen. People, um, people will then often watch what you do then. When it comes right down to it, unless you're able to mix truth and love in your life, unless you're able to be like God, I want you to hear that, guys. Guys, we often try to live in this world, especially politically, and when we type of argue in life, we think, okay, it's all about truth. I fight for truth, and that, that's all that matters. Or other people are like, it's all about grace. It's all about loving and not, not caring about the truth. But we're called to hold both in equal parts, not one lower than the other, knowing that this is the way God is. We're to live like him. My people, we need servant leaders whose hearts are on fire with the gospel who look like Jesus, full of grace and truth. Because truth without grace isn't really truth and grace without gr truth isn't really grace. But Jesus Christ came full of grace and truth. And you can do the same. Does that make sense? You guys with me so far? Yes, sir. Now I want to quickly dive into what it means to be able to call out Abba Father. I was in Malaysia a couple weeks ago, and when I was there, I heard a bunch of little kids call after their fathers. And I heard in Chinese, a kid calling out Baba. I heard from others, kids yelling out Aya or Abba. And to me, every time I heard that, I'm like, huh, Josiah, Hudson? Because I don't know if you guys know this, but what my sons call me, they call me Appa, right? My sons call me Appa, which is Korean for dad. And for me, Appa means more to, than dad does to me. Daddy, because me growing up, I never called my father dad or father or, you know, I never said daddy or any of those words. I, I called my dad appa. That's what he meant. That's what he was. He was my appa. So when my kids look at me, when they call me appa, I'm like, yeah, that's who I am. And when we were in Malaysia for the first time, I heard a lot of people making that same noise, appa, 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 right? 
And it's a very similar sound. Do you guys notice that, by the way? That uh, the, the, the name for the word for dad or daddy, this Abba, Appa, Baba, sounds all very similar, right? Have you guys noticed that before? Why do you think that is? Huh? Anybody? Yeah. I truly believe it because all dads are all stuck up and they want, to, they want to believe that all kids are calling for them. <laughs> so when the kids go, ah, 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 they're like, that's my name. He's calling for me. <laughs> right? All dads make, they want it to be about them. I get it. I understand. That's what I did. Josiah made any noise. He's like, he's calling for me. <laughs> Galatians 4 says we have a spirit that calls out Abba, Father. We're no longer a slave, but a child of God. We call Abba, Father. Our souls cry, our hearts cry, is for our Father. Uh, people, I don't know what kind of earthly father you had. Maybe he was terrible. And maybe because your father was terrible, you resolved to never cry out for a father. Maybe you resolved in your heart to say, I don't need a father because my earthly father was so terrible. Maybe you had the best dad in the world. I don't know if that's me or not, but I'm going to move around. Battery. I'm going to keep on going until it stops here. Maybe you had the best dad in the world. Whatever the case, and I'm not taking these situations lightly where you maybe had a bad father, but I'm telling you that your soul craves, longs, and yearns for a true father. That's what you're made for, every one of you. Because in him we find intimate belonging, security, and purpose. We find intimate belonging, security, and purpose. In our relationship with God our Father, we can be truly known and loved intimately. Not in an abstract way, not in a confused or tricky way, but truly known and truly loved. I recently this week was reading a, mission, a biography about a missionary named John Patton. And he was a Scottish missionary in the mid-1800s. And in his biography, there's this scene uh, where he's saying goodbye to his father. Now, remember, this isn't back then. This isn't a time where you're sending off your son as a missionary. You're thinking, I'll see him on FaceTime or I'll text him or email or we'll visit each other again. This is, he's literally thinking that he's probably saying bye for good. And I remember reading this. And I, guys, I don't know what's happened to me in my old age. I've gotten really weepy. Like, like I, I cry more now. It's, it's weird. Um, I don't know. I, stuff gets to me. I was today, just, I was at home stopping by just to grab breakfast really quickly. And I'm like scrolling through Facebook really quick. And there's just something popped up. It just had this one emotional statement on there. And I'm like, oh, Gina, look at this. And she was like, I don't want to see it. I don't want to see it. So it's kind of, kind of weird. But I read this earlier this week. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I wanted to share it with you. It wasn't, that, it wasn't like weepy. It was just more like, what a beautiful connection between father and son. This is what he says. For the last half mile or so, we walked on together in almost unbroken silence. My father's tears fell fast when our eyes met each other with looks for which all speech was vain. We halted upon reaching the appointed parting place. He grasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence and then solemnly and affectionately said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer. In tears, we embraced and parted. I ran off as fast as I could, and when about to turn a corner in the road where he would lose sight of me, I looked back and saw him still standing, gazing after me. 
Waving my hat in farewell, I was around the corner and out of sight in an instant, but my heart was too full and sore to carry me further, so I darted into the side of the road and wept for a time. Then, rising up cautiously, I climbed the dike to see if he stood where I left him. And just at that moment, I caught a glimpse of him climbing the dike and looking out for me. He did not see me. And after he had gazed eagerly in my direction for a while, he got down, set his face toward home, and began to return. I watched through blinding tears till his form faded from my gaze, and then hastening on my way, vowed deeply and oft by the help of God to live and act so as to never grieve or dishonor such a father. I was like, oh man. That kind of love of a father might be foreign to a lot of you, but I want you to hear me. If that hasn't been your experience, if you've never had that kind of intimate bond of being known and loved like that, if it hasn't been your experience till now, it can be. That's the kind of bond, intimacy, and love our God in heaven has for you here and now. I know a lot of you carry so much baggage from your parents. And believe me, I have mine. But may today you receive the true, intimate love of a good, good father. May it change you. May it form you. Know that in that love you are known and can have intimacy and connection like never before, that you are loved beyond all measure. Here's our true promise to us, that one day, for those of us in Christ, one day we'll be face to face with our Father, made new with every tear wiped away. But till that day, may you live in the foretaste of that relationship with your Father now knowing that you're known, knowing that you're loved. My people, we need a father. And our earthly fathers might have been horrible failures. They might have been some of the best fathers we could have ever asked for. But either way, the father that we need is a father that gave Jesus Christ so that we can be adopted into sonship and daughtership relationship with him. So that all your issues, all your flaws, all your hopes, all your dreams, all the issues that make up who you are, all the conglomerate pieces of the puzzle that make up who you are, they can be all known and accepted and still radically loved. Because your father who knows you, who sees you, who knows the way you are made, who understands you, loves you. And that changes everything. That you can be that open and intimate and that connected. May you know that love today. And it happens because Christ fulfilled the law, fulfilled grace, so that you could be adopted as sons and daughters. Secondly, in our relationship with the Father, we have security. Security is found in many different means. We have security in the fact that having a God as a Father means he can't fire us. Let me explain what I mean by that. I once worked at a restaurant with this busboy. That was terrible. I mean, he was terrible. I mean, he was like, like literally, he was lazy, unreliable, didn't do his job. He, he went out, had breaks all the time. He was like the worst busboy ever. And I just started working at this job, so I was eager, working hard, and, you know, busting tables. And just this other kid was terrible. So I asked the waitress, I was like, what's up with this? Why is this, how is this kid still working here? And the waitress looked at me and goes, oh, that's the owner's son. I was like, ah, oh, that makes sense. I know that's a silly example, but I want you to hear this. 
Josiah and Hudson will never stop being my sons because of something they do due to any circumstance. Let me tell you that again. Josiah, I wish Josiah were here right now. I hope they can hear this forever. Josiah and Hudson will never stop being my sons. They are mine forever. I don't care. They can be the worst busters of all time. <laughs> Josiah and Hudson will always be loved by me. I love them and I'll never stop loving them. And I am scum compared to God's love. We have security and freedom in our relationship with God our Father because he's not keeping track. He's not keeping score. He's not looking at you and thinking, oh, didn't do that good enough. Oh, you didn't do well enough at work. You didn't do well enough at school. You're not good enough at baseball. You're not good enough at piano. He's not up having, keeping track and being like, oh, they don't look cool enough. They're not dressed well enough. They're not whatever this, this, and this. That we think often that our parents are about to put on us or we often think God is doing to us. But let me tell you, he is not. He pursued you when you were at your worst, when you didn't deserve anything. He still pursued you. He chose to love you before you ever loved him. You have security. He's not leaving you. He's not forsaking you. He's not abandoning you because you think you messed up this past Tuesday night or whatever it may be. Do you hear me? But you also have security to explore the world and to be brave. Ships with safe harbors can go further because they know they have a safe place to return to. I knew as a boy that I could explore the woods around me because my dad was at home and if all else fails, he will come and rescue me or Hulk Hogan, but either one, somebody would come get me. My people live in confidence and be bold because your father knows you and loves you. He keeps you. He preserves you. He is in control. Now hear me very well. It does not mean bad things will never happen to you. Do you hear me? It does not mean that. It means that in the midst of whatever bad thing may happen, you are not alone. You have a safe harbor. God will see you through. And one day all will be made right. You have security. Lastly, in our relationship with God, with our Abba, with our Father, we have purpose. I love that this passage says we're no longer slaves, guys. We're co-heirs. Co-heirs. It means we inherit. Now, it doesn't mean just like, for some people, when we think of inherit, we're like, oh, cool, where's my money? Right? It doesn't mean we just inherit the good. It doesn't mean we just inherit the money. It literally means we inherit the household. We inherit the responsibility. If you were an heir during that time, you weren't just like, oh, give my money. You were basically inheriting the whole goods, the household, the servants, the workers, the farmhands, everything. It's all yours. Now you're responsible for it. Does that make sense? So what it means is we have co-heirs. We don't just get the good stuff. We also, and this is the good stuff too, we also have co-heirs of the mission. We're co-heirs of the mission. We have the responsibility of the household now. We're children of God. He's bestowed his title, his grace upon us. So now we say the mission that God is all about, the mission that the son Jesus was all about, is now our mission. We have purpose. I hope you get this, guys. This means that your life has more meaning than just to be successful or to live the American dream. You're the very means of kingdom advancing. You're the very means of creating, recreating a new creation. Do you get that? You get to be part of remaking this world. Guys, in the beginning, Jesus was a part of creation. He spoke, they spoke the words and it all came into being. Guys, and that's what Jesus is doing again. He's recreating, but this time, you know what he's doing? He's using you. 
He's using me. We're part of the team that's recreating the world. How awesome is that? That's a bigger vision, greater purpose than anything else this world has to offer. We're going to be part of recreating this world, making eternal significance. We're going to be a part of the team that's going to show a place that all tears are wiped away, where justice and mercy belong. That's our mission. How good is it that we have a father because we have intimacy, we have security, and we have purpose. So let our hearts cry out, Abba, Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us a spirit that cries out, Abba, Father, for sonship, for adoption, for the incredible price that was paid for our adoption, and the security we have that you chose us, that we are yours. God, we thank you that, God, your glory is that you're fully just and fully forgiving. Thank you that it exists perfectly in you. And we can live in that tension and that reality now because of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise God for, for the word that we have just received. And praise God for the work that he has done for us to, to bring us into his family. We know that when, when, you come into a, when you come into a church gathering like this, very easily you, you can feel like this, this, this doesn't feel like home to me. Or you can feel like this is, this is family. Just like you can go to someone's el- someone else's home and you're aware I'm a guest here versus being in your own home and knowing this, this is my place. This is where I belong, around the table with my people. I tell you, friends, I tell you, brothers and sisters in Christ, what, what Pastor Lawrence is preaching about, what he's talking about, what God has done for us through Jesus is he has made us, he has made us his children. That each one of us, as we come into here, we call him Father. And that makes us brothers and sisters of one another. Not, not by anything that you have done, by the way. It's only, it's only because of what he has done that we, we are looking to live this out. That as we come into the church body, that we say that we, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And let's be honest, it, it doesn't always feel like that. It doesn't always feel like we belong to God. It doesn't always feel like we are his children. And so it's one of, the, one of the beautiful things about communion, one of the beautiful things about coming to the Lord's table is that it's the Lord's table that he has welcomed us to. It's a way for us to, to live out this reality, this newness of life that we have received in him that we are invited to his table. Communion is a necessary reminder for forgetful Christians like us who struggle to remember our relationship with Jesus. Jesus came to fulfill for us all obedience to the law, even to his death on the cross. By his wounds, you are healed.
Through the cross, Jesus has brought us into newness of life. He makes us whole. He calls us his children. In Christ, you are forgiven. In Christ, you are accepted by God. That's what the cross has done. That's what this meal reminds us of. Now again, we we believe that this is a family meal. It's for those who desire to follow Jesus, who have placed their trust in him. We take of the bread and the cup as a sign of the relationship, of the fellowship we enjoy, and the promise that he has given to us, that we will have fellowship with God forever. And we get to experience that right now. In the breaking of the bread... In the breaking of the bread, he makes himself known to us as the true heavenly bread that strengthens us into life eternal. This is Christ's body broken for us. And in the cup, this is the cup of blessing that, uh, that he comes to us as the true vine in whom we must abide if we are to bear fruit. This represents the blood shed for you. And so at this time, I'd like to, to call up our, our volunteers who are going to, our servers who are going to serve uh, this meal to us this morning. Uh, we, we also have uh, the elements at different tables around, around the room uh, as well, if you prefer to take it at your seat as well as gluten-free options for, for those who, who need that. And that's, that's labeled. Uh, we'll give us a moment to, to get pre- ready to serve. They'll be located at each, uh, each section, each station here. You have been invited to the king's table as his children, as his co-heirs. And it's in Jesus' name that we welcome you to come and eat of, of this meal.
Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you as your people. God, as your children, what you have called us. God, we call you Father. You have called us your own. God, we praise you for the work that you have done through your son, Jesus Christ, who has rescued us from our sin and made us whole. You are making us whole. God, would you continue to work this out in us? Would you continue to to teach us and to to mold in us through your spirit, to, to dwell in us, that we might experience newness of life, wholeness, completeness, the peace that comes through knowing Christ Jesus. God, we know that by your wounds, we are healed. And so it's in Christ. We we praise you. We celebrate you. We thank you, God. We thank you for the real forgiveness that you have given us through the cross. God, teach us. Give us the strength to walk. Give us the strength to abide in your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.